Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Helen Russell. As you'll discover, Helen knows a lot about happiness and a little about sadness too. Helen uh, has been a journalist. She's been the editor of MarieClaire.co.uk. She writes for a number of uh, papers She's written a number of hugely successful books, which began after she moved um, to Denmark about 10 years ago. And her book, The Year of Living Danishly, has become a huge international bestseller. Helen's also uh, written the critically acclaimed Leap Year, The Atlas of Happiness, which has been translated into 21 different languages, Gone Viking, and her latest book, How to Be Sad, Uh, is to be published in March 2021. Helen, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast, and I'm so looking forward to talking to you about happiness. And let's just start off with your writing in your early years. So did you ever imagine when you were at school that you'd be a writer? Was that the thing that was sort of top of your list of things to do? I think I always loved it and I loved writing stories and my mother has very kindly unearthed some early examples of my um, enthusiasm in that area but it wasn't something that people in my family did nobody in my family is a journalist or a writer we didn't really even have we didn't have newspapers in my house so I didn't really know how on earth to go about it I was always quite nosy very curious uh, and I liked writing at school but it wasn't really until after university that I thought actually oh maybe this was an option for me. So what did you want to do when you were little? Did you think about uh, a career? Um, I think, uh, you know, I loved Anne of Green Gables. So I kind of thought, well, anything sort of where I could romantically write in a wicker chair for a while and and maybe have have another job and be able to do that on the side. I, I thought it would be great to be a writer. I just didn't really see how it might be possible. I think I wanted, you know, to do lots of things over the years. I think I thought would it be fun to be, be an actor. I think I wanted to represent Eurovision for quite a long time. But um But yeah, I wasn't terribly sure. And so at school, were you you good at English? Was that one of the things your teachers said that you had a talent for? Yeah, it was. um, But as is probably the case for for some, many people, that I I was a very people-pleasing child and I was very keen to please my teachers so I tried very hard with everything so it, it wasn't necessarily clear that that was my one talent there were things that I was terrible at but I still tried very hard at so that the teachers would like me and so um yeah I, I didn't necessarily think that that was a massive sign that I should do that and then what did you study at university so I did study English literature because I I just loved it and my my mum it was just me and my mum growing up and she was she didn't go to university and she was very very kind in a sort of way of just pursue what you think will find you'll find interesting and I didn't really think about an end point I didn't think oh I better do something vocational um so I just thought I would do what what I liked and I loved reading and I loved stories and actually I think it's a great degree because you're learning about other cultures you're learning about different lives that are not your own so it was yeah a wonderful time for me and can you remember when you wrote your first piece for for somebody else 
yeah I can I well I wrote I did work experience um in my university holidays for uh, local newspapers and and that was great and then I ended up doing um, a journalism postgrad and started writing then trying to build a portfolio it was through that I do you know actually I do you know having said that I don't think I can remember the very first piece I wrote but I remember the first time I wrote something that felt like it was truly me and it was a piece for the Guardian about um, Wintershall a big um, a play of uh, the life of Christ that goes on every year and I wrote it just with my own tone and my own voice in a way that I hadn't before and that was when I really felt like oh I could do this I could um, I could write what I think and the way I see the world. And that was when you were doing your postgraduate journalism it's just after then yeah it's just after then I got I actually started working from um from university and from doing my postgrad I got a job as a features writer on Take a Break magazine which was not a publication I had ever particularly given um much thought to before but actually it was a really interesting lesson in um in listening and learning about other people's lives and especially learning about women who hadn't really often I was speaking to women who had have no one had ever listened to their story before so it was a really valuable and and rewarding and an incredible place to work in in many respects I know people are quite snobbish about it but actually I I really you know respected and valued the people I worked with and the, the people I was speaking to every day. And would you recommend to anybody listening to this who um, would like to go into journalism the path you took so uh, the degree you took and then doing the um, the postgraduate studies in journalism? I think it's such a tricky thing because I don't think anyone should have to work for free and I, I think a lot of that sort of internship system is is no longer there and I had to earn money so it you know as as we see in many creative fields it's it's um it's the people who can afford to who end up doing things if if they are very poorly paid or not paid at all so I think certainly getting experience is really helpful. And while I was at university, the cost of living was fairly low. I had this student loan, so I was able to take unpaid work experience in internships, um, which was helpful. But I know that that's not an option for, for some people. So I don't know that there's a set way. And with university fees the way they are now, I would hope that there are paths where you can um, maybe maybe study and, and do it at the same time. I know that in publishing, for example, it's no longer necessary to have a degree for many entry-level roles, which I think is quite helpful because I loved going to university, but it's it's a costly business. And, and in terms of getting your first job with Take a Break, um, was that easy? Did you just write one letter and they said, oh, Helen, come and work for us? No, oh. not quite. No, um, I had worked. I, well, that was my first full time job. So I worked as a researcher for the Sunday Times. Um, and that was exciting. They actually paid me some money. So that was fun. Um, and I I wrote to everyone. I wrote to everyone really that I could. Um, and then I think I had to have many interviews and do some examples of my work. Um, so, yeah, nothing. Nothing's easy, but that's OK. Hard things are good. They're, they're worthwhile when we get there. And so you got your your first full time job. What was that like? What was the the newsroom, uh, the magazine, the world as you expected it? Yeah, well, it was actually because to to do a postgraduate in journalism after having done a degree, I had to I had to work first. So I had to work to save up for do that to do that for a few years, and then I also had to have a couple of jobs on the side whilst I was studying. So I was working so much while I was doing the postgrad. Um, holding down all these different jobs, very little time for sleeping. But once I'd actually got a permanent job in journalism, it felt relatively 
um, relaxed suddenly you know working 10 till 6 as it was then in magazine world was a breeze compared to working 70 80 hour weeks doing working in a cinema working behind a bar doing lots of various things so yeah it was really exciting and I was working among other people who had the same interests as me and who had uh, come to it via different roles so and I was getting to do the thing that I liked to do and speak to people every day so yeah it was a, it was fun. And how did you get on with the team what was your editor like? Um, good <laughs> I think so these were sort of the the um I think when I was starting out in the early 2000s, it was sort of the end of that Fleet Street culture. So, you know, a long lunch with a drink was perfectly acceptable. So I, I feel um, privileged to have able to sample some of that. But yeah, it was fun. It was good. And, and then just talk us through your career in, uh, in journalism before you made your move to Denmark. Well, it's been quite eclectic. Um, so I went uh, from take a break, I ended up doing something for the Telegraph for a while. And then I ended up working for um, Tatler in Hong Kong. So take a break to Tatler was quite the ride in my 20s. Then I came back during the sort of 2008 recession and did a lot of uh, freelance contracts and maternity covers. I worked for Sky for a while um, and ended up applying for a full-time role at Marie Claire and getting that as the editor of marieclaire.co.uk so yeah that was a huge thrill because I grew up reading all of those magazines so it was really it felt like I was among um, a really uh, you know a top of their game group of men and women um, who I learned a lot from so yeah that was really interesting. And, and how did it feel going from being managed to managing well, I still had people managing me. Uh, I still have people above me. But uh, it was interesting. I think it's an odd one. And I'm sure you find that with many of your guests is that you become good at something and then you're expected to manage other people, um, which is not necessarily where your skill set lies. And to be completely honest, it's not where my skill set lies. I, I, I am a very good writer. I was not, I fear in retrospect, a very good manager. I was going through also fertility treatment at the time. So I was chock full of hormones and going through quite a lot in my personal life. So I did find that really challenging and I had some great mentors and, and great people who helped me along the way, but it's not my natural um, home as a manager. Um, and I'm very fortunate that some of the people I worked with are still, I'm still working with them to this day and I can't have been terrible, but I don't think it's, it's not my, my forte. And I think that's a useful thing to realize as well. I think I, I speak to people now and many people go through their lives thinking, well, I must move up the ladder and, and maybe that wasn't right for me. That wasn't right for me to try and be a boss of people. That's not where my, my skills lie. So that sort of journey to becoming more authentic and being able to bring my whole self to work. I think part of that was accepting that managing people was not my forte, at least not at that point in my life. So, uh, you're working in London, uh, you're raising marieclaire.co.uk, and then you decide to go to Denmark. How did that happen? As I say, the managing was quite a challenge. Um, and at the time, going through all this fertility treatment as well, and I was just burnt out. After 12 years living and working at Full Pelt in London, I was absolutely exhausted. I'd recently got married, and my husband came home one day it was just a sort of drizzly Wednesday and told me out of the blue that he'd been offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. Um, 
and I knew very little about Lego. It was the time when all the sort of Nordic noir was landing and all I knew was basically Lego Danish pastries and bacon. That was all I knew. But we visited one weekend just to check the place out and we noticed that the people around us instantly were a little bit different to that that I had been used to in London. People were more relaxed and they walked more slowly and they took their time to uh, stop and eat lunch together or just chat and it just seemed different. And so it, it felt like a huge gamble. I'm not a traditionally brave person, but I felt as though Denmark had just been voted the happiest country in the world at the start of all of these polls. And I kind of thought, well, if I can't get happier or at least develop a more balanced way of living in Denmark then where can I so and I really wanted a family and I didn't know that I'd be able to do that in in London all of the doctors I kept speaking to just sort of said well perhaps you're too stressed so yes I resigned from my lovely glamorous uh, aspirational job and we moved our whole life in 132 boxes across the North Sea to rural Denmark um and I didn't know anyone I didn't have a job I didn't speak the language and I didn't quite know what to do but fortunately it was the start of something new I think I had nothing so it was only I could only move move onwards and upwards really from there and, and what about speaking the language well I mean I'm still pretty bad <laughs> so yeah no nothing um and Danes are, are generally pretty good at English um but where I was there were no other internationals and very few people my age either so it was a real hurdle I was I felt very isolated now it's a little bit different and we've actually moved to an area where there it's it's still um it's still a very Danish town but there are more internationals in the community but yeah when I arrived there, there was really nobody um so I started Danish classes and having learnt French at school and thinking I was sort of all right at that, Jean-Luc Alléa-Lepicine. Um, it was incredibly hard learning language as an adult. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes, really. So, but we persevered, but I still, I'm still not great at the Danish, I must admit. And, and is living in Denmark um, happier? I think, and I have, I have spent a long time thinking about this and working on this over the last few years, but I think um, in Denmark, there are certain, there are certain structures in place to look after more of the people. So, you know, they have, we pay these really high taxes, but it means that more people are looked after. Um, at least that's the theory. So there are fewer causes of unhappiness in Denmark. People work a, a shorter working week. The average Dane only works 33 hours a week. Um, this work-life balance means you have time for hobbies. You have time to spend time with your family. Um, and the the high taxes mean that people are looked after, healthcare is, is free and of a high quality, education is free even at university. Um, and because everyone is paying these high taxes, there's not so much of a difference between rich and poor, because at the end of the month, people are taking home roughly the same amount often. And there's a level of trust too. So you, you Danes tend to trust their government, so they're happy to pay these taxes or relatively happy. And there's a trust that your neighbor's not going to rob you to put food on the table because everyone is taken care of is the theory so that that certainly helps and i think when you trust more you have the headspace to be happy i i am certainly um of course everyone has good days and bad days but i think compared to the stress levels of my life in london things are a lot uh, calmer and more balanced living danishly and if you'd have moved to say um cornwall rather than Denmark, and you've got all that stress 
uh, from London out of the way and that you were doing the work that you're doing now, would that have felt differently or is this something that's really peculiar to Denmark and the way it's structured? That's a great question. And yeah, I think it would certainly have, have made a massive difference moving to somewhere rural in the UK. Um, and just as Copenhagen is not indicative of the whole of Denmark, London is not indicative of the whole of the UK. But I think um, it, there is something about Denmark generally. We see in, in happiness polls now going back to the 1970s that that people are rate their quality of life very highly. Uh, in a way that I think certainly in the fallout from Brexit, we've seen that people in in equivalent sort of rural areas in the UK don't. So there is something about the Danish uh, collective sensibility and sense that we're, everyone is in it together and that you will invest in your country that is perhaps not there in parts of the UK where there is still either a north-south divide or, or a, a wealth divide. And, and what about work? Are people happier at work in Denmark? They are infuriatingly near giddy at work in Denmark, yes. They have, um, I wrote about this in um, in my last book, The Atlas of Happiness, that the Danes have a word, Arbeidsglul, from Arbeider, the Danish for work, and glul, the word for happiness, that literally means happiness at work, because it's something that is uh, essential for living the good life in Denmark. So Danes will expect this Arbeidsglul at work, and if they're not experiencing it, they will either change jobs or they will, um, they will, make a change they will take time off and actually antidepressant use and stress leave is is still relatively high in Denmark but it's thought that this is because of this Arbeitsglow there is an expectation that you'll be happy at work so if you're not you do something about it you go to the doctors you get help you take time off and there's no stigma attached to that here so yeah it's incredibly important to Danes to be happy at work and so as a result studies suggest that more of them are I think that's the happiest workforce in the world. And, and I spent three decades of my working life working for the John Lewis Partnership. And the supreme purpose of the John Lewis Partnership is the happiness of the people that work there. So the company only exists for the happiness of the people that work in the organisation. And what I'm really curious to know is in Denmark, how do they define that? What does it mean to be happy at work? Is it about beanbags and pizza evenings or, or is it something more structural about the way they work? Yeah, that's, it's, um, I think it's something about autonomy, actually. Um, so maybe perhaps similar in the, in the John Lewis partnership in the way that everybody feels as though they are invested in the eventual outcome. There's a real love of consensus, so that everyone gets a say, but how and where, and when you do the work that is allotted to you, is up to you. And there, there isn't so much perhaps micromanagement. So, um, yeah, as long as you get the work done, you could be working from home before we all had to be working from home. Um, and there is more of a sense that you are trusted to do a good job and then leave. So there's not the same presenteeism that you might find elsewhere. It's um, There's a, a story when I first arrived here that someone, an, an international working till about seven in the evening, rather than getting a pat on the back, as you might be used to in, say, a capital city in many places around the world, actually got a lecture on time management and a leaflet about efficiency, because there's assumption that, well, if you can't get your work done in the allotted time, then perhaps you're doing something wrong rather than it being a bonus. So, yeah, I think it's 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 autonomy, really. And, and can you ever imagine moving back to the UK, having uh, experienced that life in Denmark? Yeah, I, th I think so, actually. 
I, I don't know when because now doesn't seem like a, a, a great time to be moving internationally but um because I my family and friends are there and I've made great friends in Denmark but there is still something about it it, it is it's where I'm from and it's the sense of humor I have and I still you know listen to a lot of British podcasts and watch a lot of British comedy and um I I don't doubt that it will be hard and there will a lot be a lot of things that I will be very very sad to lose from being in Denmark but um even even friends who are fluent in the language there is it's still a sense that for all of the great things about being in Denmark it's been a fairly homogenous country until recently and many Danes have been doing the same thing as their neighbors for generations so people are very welcoming to me but it's not always the same for people who perhaps don't look like me um there is a bit of a diversity problem in Denmark um and no country is perfect but I think I'm, I'm not sure I would ever be completely at home in Denmark and so if and when you come back what would you do to change things in the UK to make it happier for everybody if you had a if you had a a wand and you could whisper in the prime minister's ear and make the prime minister do whatever was required what would you have them do oh well it shan't make me popular but i think i'm afraid taxes have to be somewhere in there it's it's very galling to hand over near half of what you earn but it does all of the um the sort of fans of the scandinavian lifestyle and i hear from people in the us quite a lot who want the scandinavian lifestyle and think it's a sort of magical place where elves rule but they don't want to pay the high taxes and I and I don't think you get one without the other so it's been interesting during lockdown we've seen what happens when a government has to sort of step up in in some respects and and realize that a government has to look after its people um I think it's interesting the um the ID card thing that really Gordon Brown tried with and didn't quite work in the UK has been a fixture of, of Denmark for for years now and it, it works really well so I have a little yellow card that is um, basically my social security it's my library card it's all of my health information so so life in in those respects is just easier it's simpler rather than you know controversies over paperwork and things if you just if you just make things simple and you trust the government but then of course you have to have a government that you do trust so yeah it, there is no simple solution but I think around around the work-life balance issue and and of getting rid of presenteeism and we're seeing a greater emphasis on flexible working this year which is great and tell us about your latest book how to be sad because um in it you talk about it's as important to be sad as it is to be happy tell us why you wrote that book and explain to us why it's important to consider that uh, alongside the work that you've done on happiness yeah i think it's um the sort of the important and natural next step really so I have been researching into happiness now for the last eight years and back when we could travel I would travel around the world and talk about my work and meet people and interview people and I was asked time and time again by by people from all over uh, how can I be happy and often these were people who were asking at times in their life when really that was impossible I, I had been asked this question by someone who'd been recently bereaved or someone who'd lost a job someone who had caring responsibilities that felt impossible um, someone who'd been uh, made homeless recently and and this idea that how can I be happy when really loss uh, and disappointment sadness is the natural response to these things and there are times in our lives when we won't be happy 
And I came to realize that really over the last few years with the sort of rise in the, the positivity movement, um, and I had been complicit in some of the happiness work I'm doing, that I had never meant to say that the pursuit of happiness should come at the expense of other things. We cannot pursue happiness uh, to such an extent that we are phobic of feeling sad because then that's not living at all and actually if we do that then we are more likely to let normal sadness tip into something more serious we're more likely to pathologize sadness if we are so obsessed with the pursuit of happiness and anything that isn't happiness is feeling somehow wrong in inverted commas so I started to look into this a bit more um, and I spoke to geneticists and neuroscientists, psychologists, anthropologists, historians, anyone I get my hands on to really understand um, what what the feeling of sadness, what it does to our body, what it means and also what it's for. So it's a useful message. It can tell us when something is wrong and what to do about it. it there are some benefits to feeling sad. We are more clear sighted when we're sad. We are kinder, more generous. We have greater perseverance and even crying serves a purpose, reducing cortisol. So we can't avoid it. We might as well know how to handle it well. Um, so it's my thesis now. It's my big, big passion that we can all get happier by learning to be sad better because then we're really living. We're not just ignoring one part of our life. We can still be doing all the things to live a good life, but we can't ignore one big swathe of our emotions. So I think now greater fulfillment comes with being okay with sadness as well as wanting to be happy. And how do you get to be sad better? Mm, well, so I think, and I was brought up with the generation as, as many of us were, that the idea that uh, being being cheerful is, is valued and being the happy girl is, is valued. Um, and we had this idea in the UK for a long time that what you don't talk about can't hurt you and this stiff upper lip cliche. And actually that doesn't help, you know, speaking about what makes us sad and our vulnerabilities is not a source of weakness it's a source of strength so first up it's it's not fighting it it's stopping apologizing for our feelings and then it's taking the time to sit with that sadness um there's also things like getting outside and getting active getting some perspective as well as talking to people so it doesn't have to be a psychologist but there's lots of studies that show that talking to somebody somebody who you trust who will listen has huge benefits for when we are feeling sad to allow us to work through those emotions um and then there's doing things for other people as well as i think you've experienced you know the when we're sad if we do something for someone else we will feel better and it'll be a good sad we'll feel useful as though we have a purpose so there are lots of things we could do and i spoke to all of these experts as well as sort of household names broadcasters and comics and writers who have experienced sadness and, and share their own uh, journeys through it because I think a lot of the things that many of us reach for when we're feeling sad are I would say excess or deprivation so a lot of addiction for example the root could be that we're feeling sad and we don't know how to handle it um, and so finding a better way through and a better way of handling our sadness felt like a very worthwhile thing. And that was even before the pandemic. I mean, so so now more than ever, it, it's been very useful for me, certainly, to go back through the research I'd done and try and live by these principles now. And so based on all of that, Helen, what advice would you give to people listening to be happier in their lives and at work? I think there is something about if you feel something niggling not pushing it away and kind of exploring that a bit more and seeing what it is that you really want um and then i think it's it's doing the things that we 
we probably know we should but we sometimes don't feel like like looking after ourselves it's it's opening up even when that feels a bit scary and I think lowering our expectations as well um there's been a lot over the last year of people who have created great works of art during lockdown um and then there's other big groups of people we're speaking on international women's day who especially who people who have been looking after small children or who've had caregiving responsibilities during the pandemic who feel like they're barely keeping their head above water so i think it's also there's something about just recognizing that we have kept going and that is of its of value as well not trying to expect more and aim higher and higher all the time there is something to be said for celebrating the small wins in there i think as well it's feeling feeling okay with being angry about the way things are if if things are wrong then that is a message and we are allowed to be angry about it especially as women who haven't typically been allowed to be angry about stuff i think that's very valid and important to recognize right now and then I think there's a, there's a big one as well, the, um, the fallacy of arrival. I spoke to the Harvard psychologist, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar about this and this idea many of us have in our head that if we just reach this one thing, we'll be happy. If we just um, get that promotion or get that new client, then everything will be fine. And that's, that's never the case. So the pursuit of perfection is, is futile. Um, and actually perfectionism has been linked to all sorts of terrible things like um, insomnia and OCD and PTSD and indigestion, early death. I mean, you name it, perfection has been linked to it. So rather taking a curvier route through life and realizing that that's okay and of its value, I think is hugely helpful right now. So knowing all that you know now, when you look back at your younger self stressed out in London, what, what advice would you have given to you, the younger you? I think there's something about um, going offline more. I think that has not been very helpful. There's a there's a photograph of me that my husband took, which is less creepy than it sounds. But I was in bed one night and he found me asleep with a Blackberry in one hand, which dates me, I know, and like a laptop open and paper all around me and just working, working so hard, but actually not being particularly productive because you can't be when you're that stressed. Um, and having now done a lot more research into the benefits of rest and how we all think of the 10,000 hours study, the um, Malcolm Gladwell idea that if we do something for 10,000 hours, then we'll be great at it. But that, what that study, what the original study actually shows is that people who rested during that study, they are the ones who actually did the best. So it's not just doing the practice, it's having that rest. And I certainly wasn't doing that back in my London life. So I think I would try to go offline more, to rest more, to uh, look after what I put in my body. Um, I eat less wine and sugar, more green stuff. Um, and then also just talking about my vulnerabilities. I didn't tell people at work what I was going through, going through fertility treatment, which is just a huge ordeal. And I, I was so scared of not appearing professional. And actually now I would have been better in my profession had I been more honest about those things, I think. So, Helen, you've taken the happy work test. When you went through that, which areas did you score uh, highest in and which felt as though they were lower? I think for me, doing what I do now, um, I do feel as though my work is very worthwhile and I'm very grateful for that in a way that I haven't necessarily been in the past when I was work writing about fashion or, you know, things that for me weren't hugely as important as they they might have been um 
so I think doing work that feels authentic has been very helpful um, having control over my working time so that on the days when I'm my brain is better better set up to perhaps be doing admin rather than doing the big creative thinking that feels nice to be having that control there's still something about being a freelancer that is feels quite risky especially at the moment in a year when many of us have lost big chunks of our income so I, I don't always feel as though I have control about how my work is received when it gets out in the world but that's how it is you make something you put it out there and you see how it's received but um yeah all I can do is do the best work I can and then hope it reaches an audience which comes with its pros and cons and what about your own well-being do you look after your own well-being yeah I do I um I have all the things set up like I have a desk I can stand up at and I have a good chair and I I, I have plans to do exercise every day but what I also have is I love my work so much that I will sometimes catch myself curled up in a ball sort of over my computer really into something and really writing because when I get into that flow state there's there's nothing else there's time loses all its meaning so that's I think a, a good and bad thing it's, it's great that I love my work so much that I forget but then I have to uncrick my body and um, and work it out and without wishing to instrumentalize my children I'm really very happy that I now have children so that's great but it, it means that I have to stop work at a certain time to go and pick them up from daycare and Dan in Denmark these hours are, are fairly um, fixed so I, I can't work beyond 3 30 4 p.m so that's helpful as well even though it maybe sometimes doesn't feel like it on days when I'm really engrossed in something and and what about um feeling isolated because a lot of authors and journalists spend so much time on, on their own how does that affect you does that bother you or do yeah you... I, I I grew up as an only child so I tell myself that it doesn't bother me but I know that I am better when I see people so I don't miss it but I know that I should make myself so I actually have a desk uh, in a studio in an, an empty disused warehouse um, which sounds far more rough and ready than it is but um, it means that during the pandemic I've still been able to go there because there's nobody there and sometimes there are in this studio there are some other people um, three people who I'm sort of in a bubble with so I could still see them and that was nice for, for mental health on days when you just feel like you need to see someone or trying to arrange zoom calls or do a socially distanced walk um, but yeah i that hasn't been great. I think doing doing podcasts and speaking to people like this has been a nice fix of that human contact, but it's not it's not the same as the as the in person or the oxytocin and things that that brings. So yeah, I miss people. I miss people. I think when I when I think about it, but on a day to day basis, I can sort of crack on. But yeah, it can be solitary. Uh, and what about your personal development? Because one of the things that we find in our survey is that one of the things that's important to happiness particularly at work is this sense that you're growing and you're developing you're learning um how does that play out for you i do find that challenging and i rem yeah i do remember that question and that is a really challenging one because if you make something that people like they want you to make that again so that's something i've had to push back on and it, it feels very hard because you think well i could make something that would probably be more successful but it wouldn't be me growing in any way so that can feel challenging and it's hard to push yourself and that's the time when I would love to have a boss I'm very obedient I would love to have someone telling me what to do that would be wonderful who could take control of my career and help manage it um, so I have a few people who are great sounding boards or who are just their brains are wired in a different way so they can suggest things to me but 
yeah, that does feel like a hurdle and something I miss. And when things are suggested to me that feel new and hard, it takes, you know, Herculean effort to make myself do them sometimes. And, and your book, How to Be Sad, is, is out now, uh, yes. March this year. So what's next? What, what, what are you working on for the future? Obviously, you write a lot. You're still a busy journalist. But, but what's next for you? Well, I have a podcast that, that, with How to Be Sad um, where I speak to lots of people who are about their own journeys with sadness. And, and that's been a lovely thing to connect as well during lockdown. Um, I am interested in looking at awe, as in A-W-E, next. I think that's been something that many of us have lacked over the last year, be it um, physical awe, like looking at a great soul soul lifting landscape or man-made being in a cathedral and hearing a choir sing any of that stuff so I'm thinking about that a lot um I'm thinking about how to do things more digital uh in perhaps an app but again that is one of those things where I wish I had a manager to personal develop me me in that direction so yes it, this is the the space when a new book comes out you have to sort of think about what comes next all suggestions welcome and and um to finish let me just ask you a uh... A couple of quick questions. Um, what's your favourite piece of music that makes you happy when you hear it? Oh, well, um, it's, it's a toss-up between uh, Ode to Joy, Beethoven, and Van Halen's Jump. They are, I have a, a soundtrack for every book that I do, and those two are always on it. Uh, the rest of them vary. But yeah, Van Halen's Jump, there's something about it, even on days when things don't feel great, that afterwards I am fired up and ready. And you're such a successful author. Um, is there a business book or a book that you would recommend for somebody to read, other than your own wonderful books, uh, that you think is would be instrumental in, in helping them get more from their working life? Oh, in terms of journalism and writing, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I would have to check the name, but I think it's called The Universal Journalist. My ba maybe David Randall, but I will check that and I will let you know. Um, but that was very helpful when I was starting out. In the subject of happiness and sadness, is there anything that you've read that um, opened your eyes in a different way? I think, um, so Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who I mentioned earlier about the fallacy of arrival, he has written a book, The Pursuit of Perfect, which was really helpful in terms of understanding my own perfectionist tendencies, where they've come from, how they are incredibly unhelpful and how getting rid of them can feel quite torturous, but actually it's a sunk cost. So you may as well move on and start from a more, uh, more sensible and balanced position moving forward. So that was really helpful for me. So I would recommend to everybody listening, after they've worked their way through the year of living Danishly, uh, the, um, uh, the Atlas to Happiness, uh, Leap Year, uh, uh, Gone Viking and How to Be Sad, they then turn their attention to the other books you've recommended. But Helen, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your journey and also for all the amazing your work you're doing to help people have a happier life. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work. <laughs>